they suspected arson and that was actually on a security footage too we were pulling out all the different furniture and then arson dog would come along and sniff each piece of furniture and then like sit down if it smelled flammable liquids and it was like sitting down on a couple next to a couple different chairs and it was pretty cool to see it at work it was like wow it's uh kind of like a police dog but just trained for different things what's up everybody thank you for tuning into my show One of my favorite things to do on this podcast is learn about the behind the scenes of people's jobs and lives. And given that California firefighters are on pretty much everybody's minds these days, I figured I'd bring one in. Justin Davis was a firefighter with Cal Fire from 1999 to 2006, and he was on the Helitac crew in 2005 and 2006. He was part of the Santa Cruz Marine Rescue Team, he was a paramedic in in Santa Cruz on an ambulance for one year and then became a firefighter paramedic in San Jose, where he has been working since 2007. He's also had seven years on the urban search and rescue team. Now he is an engineer working on a truck and engine 14 at Station 14 in San Jose. He he also said when he plans to retire when he retires he plans to circumnavigate the globe on a sailboat justin also happens to be my big brother uh same mom different dad and he was the guy who pushed me in to the first wave that i ever stood up on before we get going i wanted to let you know that i just launched a book club on my website kyle.surf so you can head over to my website kyle.surf to check out the books that I've been digging. And if you also want to buy those books using that link, I will get a small percentage of that purchase at no cost to you. So if you want to use that link to buy the books or anything else, there's a little Amazon link on my website. Um, It's a simple way to support the podcast and it doesn't cost you anything. Other ways to support the show are to donate on Patreon, uh, head over to my website, kyle.surf, or give it a rating on, on iTunes. Or just listen to it. Share it with a friend. Share it with someone who you have a crush on. And without further ado, here is my big brother and me talking. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. All right, buddy, let's get this thing going. Let's do it. Um, it's amazing the kind of equipment that you guys get to work with. You were just talking about the fire rig, and yeah. it's kind of it it's is. it's pretty exciting. Like all of the nifty tools that you guys um, get to learn how to use and then apply um, in in situations on a regular basis. I know. I'm often surprised. I'm like, really? They trust me to drive right. this? Like, okay. I'm in charge of million dollar equipment. Right. Uh, okay. Sure. I guess it has to be somebody. So. Right. So you're right now the engineer. So you drive. Uh, yes. You I drive a truck and an engine. Usually a truck these days. And what's so the difference? Truck has 
a lot of differences. The main one visually is it has a big aerial ladder up on top that okay. extends up like a hundred feet. Okay. So, and there's a, it's a tiller truck. So the driver in the back, driver in the front, whereas the engine just smaller, one driver has all the hose, all the water, whereas the truck, no hose, no water. But, uh, so different roles, different responsibilities. Right. Um, but yeah, a pretty awesome piece of equipment you get to. Yeah. You know, so if you were, um, going in on one of the fires down in Southern California right now, what would your role be um, going in to tackle, let's say, a structure fire? Well, you'd uh, our engine just left the other night, so what they did is they linked up with... They, they, used, they took... Southern California took your yeah, engine yeah, down to fight have, the fires down there right now. Yeah. Wow. And there's Santa Cruz firefighters. There's all over the Bay Area. They go in strike teams, which is five engines of the same kind that go drive down together there'll be a strike team leader which will usually be a battalion chief and they will and it's not only with your own department but like i said like san francisco two san francisco rigs drove down met our engine at our station they drove down to ventura and met up with uh two other san bernardino engines so it just kind of it can be a mix of different departments but to make a group of five engines they went down and drove all night, got to a staging area, like a base camp, and uh, check in, depending on the work cycle of what time you get there. They either put you right to work, or and depending on what the fire's doing, or you'll maybe wait until a cycle, a work cycle comes back, and you'll get an assignment, and depending on what it is, you'll go out to a different area and carry out whatever so what might one of those assignments look like there's structure fires all through ventura county walk me through those steps of of uh right how, so, how your team would operate in that situation uh for instance you might get assigned uh structure protection which is a pretty common one to get assigned um and you go up and you maybe your five engines will be in charge of a certain neighborhood and um you basically get assigned a house and it, you determine whether it's savable or not. You kind of look at how much clearance there is. You look at, you know, general state of how, how basically it's a lot of clearance. Are there wood piles right up against the what, house? What does clearance mean? Just how uh, much brush and trees or how close they are to the house. Okay. What the roof is made of, um, different things like that. So then you'll go in, you will prep the house. So you'll do things like maybe cut branches away from the house if they are some that are close. You're basically trying to make like a defensible space around the house, move any wood piles. Um, you'll even do things like tape over the attic vents. So embers don't get blown into the attic, uh, close the curtains, make less radiant heat, kind of anything you can do. You'll pull a couple hose lines and it's, it all depends on what the fire is doing too, is if it's how far away it is. Um, but basically you're trying to make the house as ready as it can be for a fire flame front to come through. But this is before uh, a structure has actually been hit right. for a fire. Yeah. You, you, if that's it's already going. gone through, there's not a lot because you're going to be triaging out. There's, rarely are you like picking a house unless it's like just a little bit of fire has gotten on it. But they say it's, I think it's like a third of the roof. If basically... if it depends on how many houses are on fire. You have to pick and choose which ones are the most savable versus which ones are beyond um, beyond any hope. But like, oftentimes, like in Ventura, and I know the Santa Rosa fire for sure, it blows through blows through so hot, so fast that you really are just 
getting out of the way. There's nothing you can really do. It's um, these fires. It just seems like it can. It happens so quick. I mean, the w- winds are 70, 80 miles an hour, um, and people are just insignificant. They no matter what you do, you're not. It's uh, squirting a squirt gun into like a big blowtorch. Right. It's, it's nothing just, you're gonna do is gonna save or help. So basically, you kind of have to take your own safety into account. Either, and it totally depends on wind direction, humidities, what the fire is doing. You're constantly getting briefings and kind of updates from. You'll have a you know, division leader, kind of a person in charge of that specific area, and you're kind of staying in touch with them and your the rest of your strike team. And it's all situationally dependent um, what you're doing. But another example might be they need a hose line put in place, so you put a bunch of hose packs on your back and you might put in a thousand foot hose lay up a hill or downhill, whatever, wherever you are. And is that your job as an engineer on the phone? Uh, not so much. Um, my job now as an engineer is water supply. I pump, operate the pump panel, make sure there's all the correct pressures and at the end of each. So that when hose. the fire, so that when, uh, firefighters go the in. hose okay. so that they get a good stream when they open the nozzle. And if they don't, what can happen? then there's no water it goes in the fire and you know worst case they're inside and they need so it, it's all you're not so much going inside it usually when you're on a strike team like a wildland fire it's a lot different than like a structure fire like um i mean there'll be houses burning but you're wearing different equipment you're using different equipment um it, it's kind of some different tactics so whereas on a wildland fire it's you're you're getting there before it's our the house is already on fire and you're trying to prevent Mike yeah the house from catching Mike. on fire once it's on fire you're not going to spend a lot of time I mean obviously again depending but not a lot of time on a particular house you're it's more like triage big picture like maybe back up right off a whole neighborhood and move on to a neighborhood that you actually might be able to do more good okay. at whereas in the city on a structure fire you're going inside if it's you know still small yeah. enough um so before you were working as a city uh firefighter you were working on wildland fires as right. well is that correct yeah that's so it. so what is some of the what are some of the differences between uh a, fighting a structure fire and fighting wildland because um right now there are wildland fires in california as well as right. structure fires so what so are some the, of the, yeah, what okay. are some of the different tactics and 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 equipment and um the strategies that firefighters yeah. will use well um depending on you know there's different types of engines there's type 1 engines which are like the city engines that you see driving around type 3s are more certain departments have them san jose doesn't have them right now but uh like cal fire who I, what i used to work for has a lot of type 3s that's more for going off road, uh, more wildland oriented. Um, so you're wearing different, uh, gear. You have lighter weight Nomex for when you're wildland firefighting, whereas structure firefighting, you have more heavier turnouts. Um, and that is that because you're moving so much more in wildland fire? Yeah. And you're not usually going inside a structure that's on fire when you're wildland firefighting. Right. You're just getting close to the area trying to prep houses trying to make them be able to withstand the fire as much as possible oftentimes you'll prep a house and then you'll you'll leave sometimes before the fire front gets there because 
I mean, as a huge flame front blows through, it's obviously really dangerous and you don't want to be right in the way. And so are these usually houses that have already been evacuated that you're yeah. going in? And then are residents instructed to keep their doors unlocked so that you can get in? Or like, how does that? Yeah. How does that work? Um, often, yeah, sometimes they'll be unlocked, sometimes not. But uh yeah, it's funny. I used to go on a lot of wildland fires when I worked at Cal Fire, and honestly, since I've worked in the city, it's been little ones here and there, but I, I haven't been on a strike team in a while. I used to go on, you know, three a summer when I worked Cal Fire, but it's all kind of now working in the city. It's definitely the majority for me is um, medical calls, vehicle accidents, some structure fires here and there. Is that because wildland fires are so much more um, common than structure fires? No, it's just where I happen to work and what rig I happen to be on. It's kind of luck of the draw. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, some guys like my buddy who works in Fremont, he gets, he's been on a number of strike teams. It's just kind of random. I actually happen to work at a strike team engine. So in San Jose, there's... Um, certain stations that have a designated strike team engine so that they'll be the one of the ones to be called if they need and uh like i said my engine got called down there the other night but uh i happened to be on the truck and everybody who was there the engineer wanted to go so we kind of do it where if they want to go and you're on the engine you have priority yeah. to go and it's kind of just worked out for me where i haven't gone in a while it's kind of like either i've been on the truck or the b shift is gone or yeah but um it's funny, like when I worked Cal Fire, I kind of, I'd go a lot and I kind of got sick of it just because being away, you're usually gone for two, three weeks at a time. Um, On wildland fires? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you'll go down, you'll go down and sometimes you'll get a hotel, sometimes you'll sleep at the base camp. Um, but yeah, you're living, eating funky food out there, breathing a lot of smoke. I mean, depending on your assignment, usually my experience is like, you get to a fire, you'll have maybe one or two days of like active firefighting and then about two weeks of mopping up, which is just like putting out smokes, putting out. But give me some more details on this. Like bring me into this world because I've clearly never been in any of these situations. Which so world? Like, like the, when I worked the, the, Cal yeah, Fire? Yeah, Cal Fire, like wildland fire and like, well, it, um, like what is it actually yeah. like? Uh, so it's just different depending on like, so I worked. Cal Fire on a on an engine for did five summers on an engine and then I worked on a helicopter also on a hell attack crew where that's an entirely different thing where obviously you're not even you're flying and they drop you off at fires and you work with like a five person crew in conjunction with the helicopter and uh, you'll cut handline um, you'll set backfires um, most what are, of what are both of those things. Like what, uh, what's cut hand light. So basically you're scraping, like if it's like a grass fire, you're kind of more effective if it's like a lighter fuel fire, like grass fire. And so you get the call. So this is, this is when I, on the hell attack crew, yeah, I can talk about. Sure. Um, so yeah, you get a call for a grass fire and our area was big. It was, so it was out of the Lexington station, right off 17. So our area was all the way for, to I-5 to Marin and the, north to Carmel in the south to the ocean in the west so we had a big area any kind of the time there was any wildland fire we'd get called out with also the engines so we'd get there first usually and uh depending on what was burning we'd uh land they would the captain would call for either grass tools which is like scraping kind of tools like 
let's call them a cloud or uh, there's also and, and is that is that cutting line? Is that what you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, it's like scraping basically grass down to dirt. So oh, okay, so, the, so the fire break. won't spread. Okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. And then you have like these back pumps, uh, which is like five gallons of water in your back. And um, with these, it's like a big super soaker, basically, like a big squirt gun. And uh, awesome. can put out a surprisingly <laughs> amount, uh, big amount of fire if it's grass. If it's like a big raging forest fire, it's not so... You're not as... Uh, making basically they'll drop you off and they'll go do bucket drops on it but for a lot of the fires out by like altamont pass or um a lot of grasslands like all contra costa county there's a lot of big hills with a lot of grass and do you know if they're doing hell attack on, on the southern california i'm sure fires? they are yeah, yeah i don't know specifically what they're doing but um they're yeah, kind of they, throwing everything they got yeah out right and now. they'll often do be involved with um backfiring operations well they'll say maybe a from a road, they'll be like, okay, we want to hold it on a certain side of the road. And so they will maybe light fires on one edge of the road to where towards where the fire is. So it'll burn all the fuel up to where the fire is. And it'll actually even draw the fire in because, um, and it's all dependent on wind direction. You need to make sure it's like, <laughs> yeah, go the right direction. Yeah, I mean, there's been <laughs> cases of people lighting fires and have it burn down a whole neighborhood. Holy shit. So it's definitely like, <laughs> you don't want to be peeing into the wind, so to speak. You want to make a good decision. Um, <laughs> but yeah. you're literally fighting fire with fire sometimes. Oh yeah, def- definitely. It's a pretty common tactic these days. It seems like, um, yeah, it's, I'm reminded of one funny story that happened to me. That was, Felt like a total idiot, but it was <laughs> it was kind of funny in hindsight, I guess. It is uh, so on the helicopter you're assigned like a different uh, responsibility for whatever seat you're sitting in, and um, two guys are in charge of taking the bucket out and hooking it up underneath. This is when we had a bucket. Now actually, it's changed to where there's a tank and um, basically a big like hose that dangles down and it just sucks up water. But when I was there way back when in '05. Oh, six, I think, um, there was a bucket you hooked up. Anyway, my responsibility that day was to get all the tools off. So, and it was kind of like a little, usually they'd give it to the more veteran firefighters. I, this was my first season. So it was kind of like, I felt like there was a lot of responsibility on me and I wanted to like make sure I did a good job. (laughs) And, uh, anyway, we got this fire that day. I think it was like an East San Jose area, like up in the foothills and it was going pretty good. And, uh, we land and two of us are in charge of getting off, taking off all the tools and all the back bumps. Like I mentioned, those backpacks with water and part of that backpack with water is we call it the trombone. It's like the part like the, that you, like the pump part that you hook into the back, your backpack that, so you can squirt water. Otherwise, if you don't have that, you just have a backpack of water and no way to get it <laughs> squirt out. It, yeah. yeah. So anyway, those are kept in a little different, those are under the seat, not in the the well where the back pumps were. So we were, it was, it's loud. You have to transition from your flight helmet to your regular helmet, to your firefighting helmet. And then had earplugs in, it's just loud and chaotic and the helicopter lands, but still, you know, revved up going super loud. Yeah. You have to have earplugs in. Otherwise it's just like chaos bone rattling. (laughs) And, uh, anyway, we're getting the tools out and, uh, me and this other guy, I, it was just a miscommunication. I thought he was grabbing the trombone part. So I was getting the back pumps out. I thought he was, he thought I was anyway, helicopter ends up taking off. We have all the back pumps, all the hand tools, but none of the trombones. 
that you need to like actually squirt the oh, water. No. So I would, and it was like everybody else, and it's, you know they weigh like whatever 50, 60 pounds of water, and so and we had no way to get rid of it, and they're like. Oh my God. They, they were just like giving me such hell. And I felt like such an idiot because even though it was a miscommunication, it was still ultimately my responsibility. So they ended up, we ended up like dumping it out and it ended up being fine. It wasn't like a critical thing. Other, It was just like a bruised ego. Yeah. And they called me trombone for like a couple <laughs> weeks and they're like, it was a little hazing, but, uh, didn't make that mistake again. I didn't make that mistake again. I was so down on myself. That was in hindsight, it's kind of, I laugh about it, but at the time I was pretty bummed out. Rogue, yeah. I'm sure being a <laughs> yeah, rookie too. Exactly. So on, when there are firefighting to me seems like a, a job where there's a lot of, um, mellow moments. Yes. And then there are certain moments that are fucking critical and you got to be on. Yeah. And like, it will just change. You'll be kicking it, watching a show and then you'll get a call and just having the tones go off and you know, it elevates your heart rate a little bit. And then depending what the call is, obviously you kind of, it's more or less urgent. Right. So and depending on if it's uh, something like. Yeah. Like, if you hear like a fire with people trapped, I mean, you're, it's like you're going, you're excited. You're trying to every like let's second is counting. Yeah. Um, we run a lot of medical calls. You kind of like become like those become more routine. We move with a purpose, but it's not like it doesn't get your heart rate nearly as yeah. going. So yeah, that's one of the things you have to deal with and. How do, how, yeah, but how do you deal with it? I mean, most people don't have jobs where you need to click into a life and death situation. Yeah. I'm, um, like most people's jobs just don't involve life and death situations. Yeah. And most days I don't have life and death situations I deal with. But every now and then you do. And um, for me, it's it can be definitely be stressful, but um, you kind of have to have an attitude of it's not your emergency you're just going there to try to help out. Um, it's a little bit of a disattachment, um, that you kind of have to have. It's, uh, just almost like being surgical about it. Yeah. It's very like methodical for me, like being prepared lowers my stress. Like when I was a medic, you know, if you know what you're supposed to do and you're doing, and you know that you're doing all that you can do, it's not too stressful. It's like, if it's that wondering, like, God, am I supposed to be doing something else? Like, I'm not hundred percent on how this works. Like I don't totally know the capabilities or limitations of this rig, things like that are to me what might cause stress. Right. So the way you can, the way I mitigate it is just making sure I knew all my protocols or that I knew how to make sure I know how to get a rig into pump, make sure I know, um, and the thing is, is like things always go wrong on a fire. Like it never goes just according to planned, but it's about being able to fix things on the fly, kind of think outside the box, um, just correct course a little bit to, and it all, the fire always goes out. Um, you don't always save somebody, but you do your best and, um, yeah, it can be stressful it can be um it's kind of one of those things like I've I uh I, I have always kind of prided myself on my ability to kind of be able to stay calm and kind of just think clearly and uh 
not get too worked up. I think it's kind of a necessity for the position. You can't really be one of the people who spins out and can't think because on a certain level, you are the bottom line. Like nobody else is going to come in and like fix it for you or like you're the last resort oftentimes. Yeah. Rule number one, don't be victim number two. Exactly. And so it's kind of like you have to realize that you didn't cause this emergency and you're there trying to do whatever you can. And sometimes you can really help. Sometimes it's too late. Sometimes shit happens and you kind of don't have a lot of control a lot of times. So you have to be able to do what you can do, but also be able to, like I said, kind of not get too attached to an outcome. And yeah. uh, a lot of it is just trying to make sure that my crew and I stay safe and be able to realize that like, hey, this no house is worth anybody getting hurt. There's a, uh, I guess a saying or whatever that's like, you risk, uh, you risk a lot to save a lot, risk a little, save a little. So if someone's like trapped in a house, you pretty definitely you would risk more trying to go in and get the person rather than if it's a house on fire. Um, it's gotten to the point, at least my station, my department, it's people aren't trying to get hurt for, or have a ceiling collapse on them or fall through a roof. If it's, you know, some abandoned house that's burning. So. Right. How will you make decisions um, based off of uh, if a superior asks that you do something that you might not be comfortable with because it, 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 it seems like it is a very militant, um, yeah, there's a chain of command, there's a chain of command and there's a, sure. there's a necessity for that, that everyone knows their job. They know their place. They know what job right. that they have to do. They know how to take orders, things like that. Exactly. Um, but like bring, bring me into a situation like that. Um, either one that like you've, yeah. you've had or like these kinds of examples of fortunately what these I have, have, I work with really good captains who I trust and, um, we're always usually on the same page, but yeah, you might have a captain who, um, you know, maybe makes a, a call or tells you to do something that you don't necessarily think is safe or that you like would, going into a burning building that you yeah, think is unstable that, or like yeah. what are, what are examples of that might be one, um, or maybe uh, like oftentimes, uh, we'll stage on a call if it's like a fight or if it's a shooting or something, we'll stage for the police department to come and kind of clear the scene or, and for a while there we were waiting long times for the police to get there. And sometimes it'd be like, Hey, you guys want to stage? You want to not? Let's just, let's go in kind of thing. What is st- uh, staging? staging? You're just like waiting down the block. Okay. So, so someone calls and they say, I just heard gunshots in or a house. Like, hey, I just got shot. I need, so we'll go and we'll park like a block away and wait for the police, the cops to get there and make sure the guy who shot isn't there. They'll basically clear the scene to make sure it's safe. It's not like continuing to evolve with more shots going to get fired, things like that. Even oftentimes fights, things like that will stage. We don't know if there's knives or if people are going to try to come after us. We don't have like that's a cop's job. Totally not trying to get hurt, get shot. Um, so anyway, sometimes maybe a captain would like, Hey guys, let's, uh, let's just go in and you know, um, I think this sounds like it'll be fine. No, no big deal. Or what do you guys think? So, or yeah, go, let's, we're going to go inside this house. Um, like, I, I mean, I'm not usually taking the nozzle as an engineer. I'm usually outside, but, um, and honestly, this hasn't happened to me very much where I would, I had to like refuse an order or something, but the situation is definitely could happen. And for me, it's like, what you're supposed to do is kind of bring some, bring 
whatever it is that you feel is unsafe to that person's attention. Maybe they didn't see it. Maybe they didn't see a, you know, a wire hanging down or they don't have, they didn't get all the information. So you bring up, um, whatever it is, why you think it's unsafe. And, uh, if they say, yeah, I see that we're still going to go do this, then you're supposed to basically follow the captain's order. That's, um, if I honestly thought that it was like a dangerous situation, I, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I would be like, there is like a whole like refusal of order. Um, uh, but luckily that doesn't happen. Yeah. Luckily that doesn't lot. happen to me. I mean, obviously my life is more important than my job. I mean, I don't think I would get fired Yeah. if I, but b- bottom line, I'm going to look, look out for my crew and for myself. Yeah. And, and, and you hope that your captain is too. Yeah. And right? it seems like that's, n- that's not really like the, the, the case. The co- like, more common issue is like your captain, not in my case, but, um, certain captains kind of just losing their cool and freaking out and yelling. There's a lot of like, yeller captains <laughs> who are just like, it's kind of yeah. funny. Like sometimes the guys who are the, you know, train and study the very most when it comes down to like the real thing they're like the ones freaking out the most <laughs> it's kind of funny i um fortunately the captains i've had have you know been pretty calm cool and collected and it's funny how infectious it is like i remember um when i was first on cal fire we'd come up to cross some I remember this one particular structure fire. It was a whole fully involved structure fire house. And I was, I was pretty new and it was like, holy cow, this is <laughs> big scary. fire. Yeah. yeah. And so I remember he came up and he kind of put his arm on my back. He's like, all right, this is what I want you to do. Just pull this line. Like in the same, this same voice, like pull the hose around the back and, um, we'll go from there. And so it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like his calmness completely like infected me. And I was like, oh, okay. Like it, this doesn't have to be, super stressful, scary. And it was, so I, uh, try to make sure, and a lot of it in your, in your voice, it's like, if you can, um, maintain just like a calm voice, it really like affects other people's, um, entire demeanor demeanor, and the way they're feeling. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that that's also super important when you're communicating with victims. Yeah, hundred percent. Oh my God, you're gonna yeah. die! <laughs> wow, this wound looks real bad. <laughs> yeah, that's part of why I like the job too. It's like you can really, um, you can be with somebody who's oftentimes having a really bad day and uh, is really vulnerable. I, like I'm thinking of like a maybe a person who's trapped in a car after a car wreck. Yeah. And uh, as a medic, you know, you get in there with them. And have, guys, you ha- have you had this situation? Yeah. You, like, yeah, for br- sure. Bring me into the situation. Well, you get a call um, for someone who's, you know, in a bad car accident, who's trapped in the car and uh, you go and this is more, everybody has their different roles and responsibility. The truck company has all the tools, jaws of life, things like that. They set up and they'll be coming up with an extrication plan. Whereas, and then the medic, if they can, they might get in the car and, uh, you know, you put a, a neck brace on them and you're talking to them and they're obviously, you know, you know, hopefully not too hurt, but oftentimes they'll be trapped and really hurt and, um, freaking out. And you, uh, are there and trying to like talk to them and connect with them and oftentimes just be able to kind of talk them down and let them know that, Hey, you're here. You're going to help take care of them. You're going to be okay. Um, just, kind of connecting with them on like a personal ba- uh, way and kind of making it like, Hey, we're, it's going to be okay. Oftentimes that's, uh, 
helps way more than you might expect. Just kind of like, cause they're so feeling so vulnerable. So like, you know, obviously hurt, um, traumatized everything. And if you can kind of get in there and just be a, a reassuring voice for them. Yeah. Do you remember? It makes a big difference. Yeah. Do, is there any, exam- sometimes, I mean, maybe not necessarily like if they're going to bleed out, they're going to bleed out. But like, <laughs> at least in that time, like, I mean, um, on a psychological level, you can uh, make a big difference. Like, yeah. in their, uh, just being able to talk to them. Yeah, I'm sure on some kind of psycho spiritual level as well. Like, people are thinking about death. Our, right. our culture doesn't acknowledge or think about death all that often. So, right. someone who gets into a bad car accident, that could be the first time they've ever really thought about. Like, shit, this is this might all end. Yeah, right so now. many, uh, just a flood of emotion, you and, know, yeah, and thoughts and feelings. And like, if you can just have someone who's right there, yeah, with them to, to meet them, and I, a lot of calls, even like, I mean, medical calls, old, old lady who falls down. Oftentimes, it's just there's a medical component, oftentimes, but then sometimes it's just talking to them and yeah. kind of being the reassuring voice to kind of let them know you're there to help yeah. them and it's, it's going to be all right. Are there any, um, examples of that, that, that come to mind? Um, I remember a couple of weeks ago we had like a 12 year old kid or so who was running around and ended up slipping and completely breaking his arm. It's just like total angulated, <sighs> bad arm fracture. And, uh, he was laying there being a total trooper, being super tough, like breathing, like uh, and I was able, I was there and um, one guy was kind of splinting it and I was kind of just holding his other hand kind of like helping prop him up a little bit and like we were kind of just like I'm like hey you're doing good this is gonna it's gonna work out I know this sucks right now but uh, you're being t- super awesome right now we're gonna get through this and I was able just to really like I don't know it was kind of a um, it felt good like he like he was really receptive to it too and we were able to kind of like work through this together almost. Right. And uh, I felt good. It was kind of like, all right, that was, that was awesome. I was able to like kind of get down there on a very like, uh, with the kid too. Yeah. I don't know if it, it felt good at the end of it. I was like, that, that was good. Yeah. And I mean, we were talking earlier today about the effects belief have on outcome. Yeah. And like if, if you can believe that you're going to be okay, that actually probably does have a big impact on yeah the and even if like you don't even know if they are or not like i don't know if they're gonna die or not just kind of like i don't know just help calm them down yeah and yeah. not necessarily lie to them but just be like know that you're there doing everything you can yeah. to help them out yeah has it changed like having three boys has yeah. that changed your um for outlook sure. and perspective on when you're going to calls and there's there's kids yeah, involved for sure yeah it's definitely kind of more closer to home um you know you are there with your kid and you're like don't run in the street or whatever like you've seen (laughs) kids get hit and it's like uh kind of brings it definitely closer to home and then at work it's kind of like you can really relate you i mean you're around kids and uh as a parent it's like you know like the connection that you have with them and really empathize with other um other parents yeah we go to a lot of like uh maybe kids with special needs or like, like the other day, this kid developmental disability who had seizures like every day. And it was just like, Oh, it's feeling for the parents so much. And it's just another one of those times. It's like, you kind of take care of the patient and they get in the ambulance and go to the hospital. But then it's just like, so you get these like little glimpses into people's lives, but then you realize it's like, wow, that is their everyday life. I just got this like 10 minute glimpse into it. But 
gosh, it just really makes you uh, count your blessings and empathize with yeah. people who have, they weren't planning on having that happen to, and just complete life changing the rest of their life. They'll be taken care of this kid. So it's, it's heavy sometimes. It just really makes you, whew. Want to <laughs> go out and live the life to live yeah. your life to the best of your ability. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, you're, you're a very experience driven person. You enjoy surfing, camping and traveling and sailing. And I would imagine that it's, Part of that uh, is at least at least part of that is a result of at seeing death and just like seeing how quickly it can yeah all life end. is fragile man it's uh can end quick it's uh it's yeah it's definitely fragile and um it's weird how it can just be snuffed out in the blink of an eye it's yeah. uh it can be very random seeming um, do you feel like you can turn off work when you go home and uh, go surf and, and enjoy yourself or do those traumatic calls stay with you um i think they stay with you to a certain extent for me personally um it kind of fades with time like i'll have a heavy call and it'll kind of be in my psyche for a few weeks a couple months and the really bad ones will definitely like i remember and um it's kind of like a just a compartmentalized memory that like yeah that happened but um yeah no i mean ptsd is a real thing for sure it uh we kind of joke at, at that it's like a backpack and that like kind of slowly fill it up with different experiences or things you see and like sorry Jerry, like yeah that one went in the backpack <sighs> and uh so it's um affects different people differently yeah um i can talk about it with my wife a lot so we kind of process a lot just talking with her um and with my crew and it's uh people process it different ways we have oftentimes a pretty gallows sense of humor um joke about things that a lot of people would think are inappropriate right <laughs> but it's well, kind of necessary to yeah. kind of make light of like these really heavy situations yeah 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 it's, it's a uh, form of catharsis for sure so uh i think my crew my family my friends my the outlets i have being out in nature definitely yeah help me uh deal with it all and everybody has kind of different ways of dealing with it yeah um, i mean you, you and i have both read um the work of sebastian younger when he's yeah. tribe like the, the argument that he makes is that humans are actually really good in traumatic situations yeah we wouldn't be to this point in evolution if we hadn't been able to make it through exactly a lot of traumatic situations it's the loneliness that many people feel and the lack of community that they return back to after exactly after a traumatic situation so by you having family friends co-workers who you can bond with i would imagine that that has a huge effect on um your your mental state and being able to stay um yeah. sane and well adjusted and it is oftentimes weird coming home you know from a shift back to work the transition between it's kind of like it is kind of like you have these two families that you like live laugh sleep eat with at the station and then you go through these different experiences and you're laughing having a good time bond like real good sense of camaraderie amongst your crew and then coming back home and dealing with kids and the wife, it's definitely like, it can be uh, a sticky point for sure. It's like uh, kind of completely different um, environments and like that adjustment can definitely be hard. I mean, and just being gone for, you know, 
two, three nights a week. Our schedule's two two days on and four days off. And uh, just being gone for the two days or two nights, it can be you switch into a different frame of mind and kind of it's it's a lot different than uh, being at home. You kind of have to switch it off when you're at home. And sometimes it's easier than other times. Have you ever seen the movie The Hurt Locker? Yeah, I did saw it a while ago. You know that scene? There's this great scene in the movie where um, the the main character diffuses bombs. Right, that's right. Yeah. And um, just gets into as heavy of situations as you could oh, possibly yeah. imagine. And then he's back um, in the United States and he's in a supermarket. And he's in one of the aisles and there's um, all these different variations of cereal. And he's trying to pick out what box of cereal <laughs> to get. Yeah. And it's just this classic moment of really who yeah. gives a shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, um, it's interesting. I mean, that's alcoholism, divorce. It's all like pretty high rates in, of like in cops, firefighters. Um, I think the divorce rate for firefighters is like close to 70%. Wow. Yeah. So it's, Definitely taking take a toll on your family life. Yeah, um, I'm uh, feel fortunate that my wife kind of what used to be paramedic kind of was in the business, understands and helps me. Kind of is a place where I can I can talk to and kind of help process everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's shift gears here uh, into what people can actually do and uh, like so. I'm guessing that there are a lot of mistakes that civilians can make that get themselves into more dangerous spots that you see again and again. I mean, almost in the same way of like a lifeguard seeing inexperienced swimmers constantly getting caught in riptides. What are the riptides, so to speak, that that you see people get caught in um, uh, as a firefighter? Getting drunk. Getting drunk. <laughs> Yeah, we joked that if like you eliminated alcohol and cigarettes, call volume would probably go in half. I bet. <laughs> but uh, just from like the you know emphysema, CHF calls to crashes to fights to people just behaving like idiots because they're uh, wasted. So, but I mean that's definitely a common that's, theme. Yeah, I would imagine. But, uh, if people would go, just go to bed when they're supposed to go to bed and sleep through the night, it would. Uh, but I mean, people are always going to be there's human error yeah and uh that's what keeps us in business i guess <laughs> kook slams <laughs> and oftentimes very legitimate uh kook slams. <laughs> it's uh you know oftentimes totally <laughs> random things and it's just like yeah it couldn't Tr- have truth is stranger than fiction sometimes and it, the stuff that happens you're just like what yeah but uh like ca- car wrecks do you go to a lot of car wrecks yeah fair amount it's definitely uh something that we go to it's um not as much as regular as medical calls, you know, yeah. people falling down, people being drunk, getting in fights, things like that. Um, and how about on the f- end of fire? Uh, probably the least common. Least common. Yeah. I mean, you go to little outside fires here and there, but like a full blown structure fire is definitely not like the most common call. Like for us, you know, it just kind of comes in waves. Sometimes you get like a, like there was a, a uh, car fire arsonist guy who was running around. So we'd go to like a couple car fires at night and then like, it'll just kind of come in waves kind of randomly. So sometimes I had a fire on this last week on Saturday, but that was my first one for like a couple months. So it's just kind of 
random hit and miss just depending and certain parts of the city are busier than others and get more fires than others um what so, and what are factors that determine that mm, socioeconomic factors for sure um more fires in poorer neighborhoods yeah why is that um gosh it's uh, i think a number of factors just uh yeah bad wiring in their house um you know I don't know. It's it's kind of a, a multitude of factors, and I couldn't really put my finger on one thing that why there is more fires in poor neighborhoods. It's just like a, I would say it's a number of different reasons. Yeah, I think well, in a lot of the nicer neighborhoods, you know, they might have like more likely to have working smoke alarms, fire sprinklers, um, better. You know, the houses are in better condition without you know big um, maybe big junk piles or faulty wiring or it's just totally kind of ran like the fire the other day was started by the water heater just um crazy i don't oftentimes we're like yeah we don't know why it started it's just we haven't joke like mice with matches just <laughs> mice with matches <laughs> yeah yeah that's and then a- uh, you know if they suspect arson the arson investigator will come and kind of determine and sometimes it's obvious sometimes a person can tell you yeah, i was a kitchen fire i was cooking Oil got too hot, started his kitchen fire. But then oftentimes it's kind of like we never really find out why it ended up starting. How can you tell if it's an arson fire? If there's suspicious circumstances around it, um, if it kind of just something seems fishy, then you'll call arson out and they'll come investigate. If or if there's been like you know a number of fires in a certain area, or with like that car fire arsonist, there was running around like multiple car fires in a night is unusual, and so you might call arson out to see. You know, if they're finding flammable liquids or it's cool. They have some pretty neat tools like um, canine arson. So these dogs that can sniff out flammable liquids. Wow. Yeah. And they're trained to like um, give different like like they'll sit next to like uh, I remember once we were pulling out all these we they suspected arson and there was actually on a security footage too. We were pulling out all the different furniture and then an arson dog would come along and sniff each piece of furniture and then like sit down if it smelled flammable liquids and it was like sitting down on a couple next to a couple different chairs and it was pretty cool to see it at work it was like wow it's uh kind of like a police dog but just trained for different things yeah pretty interesting so why why'd you get into firefighting well you've been doing it forever yeah i mean i I remember i think i wanted to do it starting when i was junior high-ish um i it was always kind of, I remember I wanted to be like a helicopter pilot or firefighter. I think I was just like attracted to the excitement of it. Um, I had a brother-in-law at the time when I was in high school, was a firefighter. It kind of helped inspire me. Um, I remember with, uh, Beth Pitts dying at the lane. I was right there with her and kind of was witnessed the whole process of, um, ambulance fire. And I, I remember feeling a little bit helpless, like, gosh, be nice to be able to help out more. I think that was part of the inspiration. Um, but yeah, I remember I was an explorer in high school and then got hired with uh, CDF. It was called now it's called Cal fire when I was 19, got out of high school, went to Cabrillo, then EMT got hired doing that when I was 19. And then my intention wasn't to become a full-time city firefighter. I was, I was enjoying working the seasonal gig. I was traveling during the winter uh, working on boats, going on extended trip, surf trips, basically, and living the life. It was great. And then, uh, 
yeah, it was my plan was I was going to save up and uh, buy a sailboat and expat to kind of, you know, work as I sailed around the world. And uh, I remember I was working as a crew on a boat in Panama and I met different people kind of similar age, a little bit older than me, kind of doing exactly that. And um, oftentimes like the guys would be like, oh God, it's harder than you expect. It's really hard to find work in third world countries. Um, my girlfriend got over it. She wanted to go live on land. And then I'd come across these other people, maybe a little bit older, who like maybe had a house they were renting out or had some more of their source of income. And it was like, they seemed like they were just living it up a little bit, but like kind of just a more steady, secure situation. And they were, seemed like they were enjoying themselves more. And so that kind of made me feel like, gosh, maybe I should try to get a job, be able to get a house and like maybe then rent it out, kind of postpone this whole dream a little bit longer. But, um, hopefully kind of have it be more sustainable and like actually, um, realistic, I guess. So that's kind of the, where the fork in the road was for me. And so at that point I had, at, um, worked seasonal firefighter for a while. I did seven seasons of it and then kind of decided to go the paramedic route, worked on the ambulance, um, and then ended up getting hired with, uh, San Jose. That's, that was about 11 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Time flies. I know it's, it's funny. It's like, almost halfway done with the career. <laughs> it's crazy. So when do you retire as a firefighter? Um, I can retire. So it's, uh, our, our department is after 25 years, you retire for me. This is not my case. will be 25 years. You can go 30 years. You can be like 50 if you have, th- um, 30 years on anyways. Uh, or my case, I'll be 52. I'll have 25 years on. And, um, or I could go to 30 years, but I'm not going to, I'm going to go 25 years and retire. I got a big plans for retirement. So I'm trying to get out as quick as I can and, uh, do other endeavors. So, so if, um, if someone's listening to this and they want to take the first steps to potentially become a firefighter, what might some of those be? Um, it's just obviously a super competitive field. Um, yeah. so what are, what are some of those steps and what are some of the um, maybe some of the, the extracurricular activities that set you apart to allow you to get this gig? Well, everybody kind of has a different story of how they kind of go about it. There's um, definitely some general themes. You pretty much have to be an EMT. Um, then being a paramedic is kind of the golden ticket these days as far as if you for sure are getting hired. It's harder if you don't, if you're not a paramedic. It's not impossible. Different departments might hire in EMT, but then having a uh, certain certifications like firefighter one, you can either go through an academy, pay to go through an academy and get that. And you get a bunch of other cert- certifications as well. But, um, yeah, I always encourage people to kind of like, just make a, make like a five-year plan on like short-term goals, long-term goals, different, like I said, different people kind of, they might, okay, should I go to paramedic school or get a uh, AS degree in fire science? Like what should my priorities be? I kind of recommend a shotgun approach. Try to do as much as you can. Write out a list of short-term goals. Become an EMT. Do you want to be a paramedic? Uh, start looking at a paramedic school. Um, then from and then I, I had a great time with CDF or Cal Fire. I always recommend being a firefighter with uh, them. It's good experience. Um, and then, but oftentimes it's a uh, you know people doing a career change. They might've been a teacher or a pilot or whatnot, and they just want to do something different. So it's, um, 
a lot of it is about just having being able to talk and interview well. Um, so b- bare minimum is uh, EMT driver's license. But then on top of that, it's like, like I said, being a paramedic and having some fire experience somewhere, become a volunteer with a different, uh, with an agency, things like that can definitely, you know, build up your resume, volunteer in your community. Um, you know, I, I used to volunteer in the emergency room. It's an easy way to yeah. get experience and build up the resume. And, <coughs> and what are some, uh, nice things that civilians can do for firefighters? <laughs> just uh pull over to the right when we're uh driving behind you <laughs> um baked pies and foot massages yeah not, not quite on the foot massage but um yeah i mean that's you don't have to do too much it's like uh have a smoke alarm yeah i can't think of much else besides um those basic things i think uh enjoy yourself yeah, it's life short. Life short, yeah. And uh, count your blessings and, yeah, be nice. Right on, man. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed that conversation, everybody. I'm going to play you out with a song by The Devil Makes Three called Working Man's Blues. And if you want to give this show a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you are listening from while you're listening to the song, that would be cool. I'll see you guys next week. Get out in the water, give someone a high five, and hug a firefighter. They say times are getting hard on a working man. Well, they say times are getting hard on a working man. Everybody